tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. Has any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church? That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hello. I'm just clicking away at the computers here, looking at letters. Oh, did it, did it, I don't know if that worked or not, but well, we'll find out. Let's, let's pray. It always helps. Happy Halloween, if that's appropriate. Happy Eve of All Hallows Day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us now go to the big book on the coffee table. All right. Let's see here. Uh, where, oh, 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 yeah, reading. Yeah, I got to pull up the reading here. Okay, you know, I've been pushing this harebrained theory about about um, the letter to the Romans, St. Paul, trying to figure out a way that would be acceptable to Orthodox Jewish people, which basically most Jewish people were Orthodox. And this idea of conservative and reformed and Orthodox, that's a kind of modern idea. If you were Jewish, you were Jewish, and you, you followed the law. And if you didn't follow the law, you were being, you were a bad Jew. We don't think that way anymore. Uh, so that said, there's this group of people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they follow the law of Moses, and then there are all these Greeks who Paul has said, you can be Christian, you can be Israelites too, and you don't have to follow the law. You can eat pork and all the other stuff. And they're saying, wait, 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 wait a minute, hold, hold on here. And Paul is saying, there is, if you look carefully at Torah, and you look at the scriptures and the prophets, this is all foretold um, that that uh, the law had a temporary uh, a temporary application for its purpose, but the Messiah has come, and now everything is turned on its head and at the eighth chapter to the letter of the Romans, this is where he throws it in now I maintain that that because because this is history, around 50 AD, the Emperor Claudius expelled the Jewish community, which would have included the Christians. I mean, it's 50 AD, just 20 years after the fact. He expelled them all from Rome, and Priscilla and Aquila, who were in the tent-making business and leather-working, met Paul in Corinth. They worked together, and Paul said, I'm going to write a letter to these people I've never visited who are coming back into Rome now that Nero is emperor, and I'm going to say, there's a way you can kind of get along with each other. 
But in this letter, he does something breathtaking. And the, the, the breathtaking part comes in the eighth chapter, where he says, therefore, I remember an old preacher used to say, when you see therefore in the Bible, ask what it's there for. Therefore, um, uh, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of people um, use that to, to say, well, if you're a Christian, you're, you're saved. And once saved, always saved. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's saying it to the Romans because one group is condemning the other group. You, you're, you're weak Christians. You don't eat this. You don't eat that. You're sinful Christians. You eat that. You eat this. And St. Paul is applying that this is not a uni- the, the opening of the eighth chapter of St. Paul is not kind of a universal, oh, I'm okay, you're okay, and God loves us all no matter what we are. He's saying that the law points out, at the end of chapter 7, the law points out how weak and sinful I am. And then the 24th verse of chapter 7, miserable person that I am. In other words, bent down under calluses. That was a word of the day. It's a great word. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. I, I myself with my mind serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. And then it jumps, it jumps a cliff because the next verse says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus freed you from the law of sin and death. So you're not obeying the uh, the law of Moses. You're eating pork. Um, you're doing all these things. This is not a carte blanche to say now that you can you can commit commit adultery and you can murder people and you're still going to heaven. Uh, the Bible nowhere says that. I don't believe. So, but he says those who live according to the flesh are concerned with things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit with the things of the spirit. That's verse five, chapter eight. Okay. What's he saying? We live in this all too physical world. And what we see is what we get. And he's saying, no, there is another world. That If you're a Christian, you're living in another world. You're living in another dimension. Again, I, I remind you of, of Roy Shulman's wonderful book, Honey from the Rock, which is about his, uh, his conversion. And in Honey from the Rock, he points out that that there was um, a day in which the veil between this world and the real world, <laughs> that is the spiritual world, that that the veil became very thin, and he he could see this world that he was living in that you usually can't see. Um, I know this sounds obscure, but what is spirit but breath? You take a rock. And that's real. It's it's substantial. It's 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 hard. You can pound nails with it or anything you so choose. That's you know this is this is visible. But what what is life? I mean, something's breathing. Breath is very unsubstantial. And the spirit, the word spirit means breath. But the world of of this living. Uh, usually invisible reality is actually stronger and more real than the world with rocks and trees and stones and all that. 
uh, again, this is, uh, I'm just stabbing at this because I find the letter of the Romans one of the most perplexing documents I've ever read. But what's going on is our job is not to fill in the blanks and check the boxes. It's not to forget that stuff. Those are all indications of the way we should live in the world. The law of Moses and especially the Ten Commandments. These have a purpose, but Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. They are fulfilled when they come to life. For instance, what does it mean uh, uh, to have the commandment uh, uh, of, of, uh, let's say, meat and milk? You can't eat meat with milk. What does that mean for it to come to life? (laughs) To honor all creation. this this negative prohibition, you couldn't eat meat meat meal together because the Bible says, uh, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. The rabbis hated cruelty to animals. How do you fulfill that? <laughs> by by treating treating animals ethically, I suppose. Or or thou shalt not commit adultery. How do you fulfill that law? Well, by not committing adultery. No, it's more than that. You don't commit adultery, but you do more than the law requires. You have as your closest friend, your spouse. There are people who would never dream of having a physically adulterous relationship, but they have spiritually adulterous ones. They are not friends with their spouse. And in that sense, they take their emotional needs elsewhere. And that's wrong. (laughs) Surprise. You fulfill the law by being, being the best friend of your spouse. Thou shalt not steal. I never steal. How do you fulfill the law, that law? By generosity and charity to the poor. And so on. Thou shalt not bear false witness. How do you fulfill that commandment? By building up the reputation of other people, that other people, by building up the reputation of people whom other people are trying to destroy. So we fulfill the law because the Lord is breathing in us. The spirit of God, the breath of God is within us. And our goal is to be like him. What we have in today's readings is adoption. This is one of the most wonderful concepts in the Christian vocabulary. We don't go to heaven. We're adopted by that relationship, which is God. St. John Paul the Great said, God is the perfect family. Your family is like a family, which I thought when I heard that on a good day, maybe. But God is the perfect family perfectly united yet perfectly diverse and there are there are now, now fasten your seat belts drive a little slower there are four persons in the trinity four what do you mean four persons the father the son the holy spirit and the bride the bride of christ by the marriage of christ to the church the church has been enthroned saint paul says in his letter to the ephesians we are seated with him in heavenly in the heavenlies in heavenly places, because we have become like him. Our goal is not to go to heaven. Well, it is, but bear with me for a moment. Our goal is not just to go to heaven. Our goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ, which comes up in this eighth chapter. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined not to go to heaven or hell. Doesn't mention heaven or hell. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And what does Jesus look like? I've shared this a hundred times with you. Jesus looks like Galatians, the fifth chapter. Now, the fruits of the Spirit are these, love, peace, patience, joy, etc. 
God wants by his creative breath. He made all things out of nothing by the, by his breath. The spirit hovered over the waters. He spoke a word and things came into existence. How do you speak a word by breathing? By his breath, he made all things by speaking Christ, who is the word. That's kind of mystical sounding, but that's the mechanism of creation. And he wants to do that again in our life. He wants to speak the word and breathe into us the very nature of Christ so that we are worthy candidates for adoption. That's our purpose, not simply to go to heaven, but to become part of that relationship, that perfect family, which is God. We don't become gods. We become part of that intimacy, that relationship, which is God. This is the heart of this letter, that the law kind of kept you in line. The law written in stone, the law which applied to this world. But a new thing has happened in Christ. He has risen from the dead. God, God breathed life into that dead body and created this amazing reality, which is the risen Christ, filling not just us, but the world and the universe. So this is, this is beautiful stuff. You know, and this idea that creation awaits with eager expectation, the revelation of the children of God, for creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it and hoped that creation itself would be set free from slavery or corruption. What? Yeah. That slavery, creation itself would share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. What's that about? Um, the, the, uh, <clears throat> I think Rousseau, the, the philosopher who was very anti-Catholic, said this is, uh, uh, Rousseau was uh, um, uh, somebody who brought about the French Revolution <laughs> inadvertently. Uh, but he said this is the, the, the best of all possible worlds. We don't believe that. The creation is imperfect. It's, it's flawed. It was made flawed by its creator. I shared with you, our Rebel Lefkowitz told me that the, the second day, he reminded me, the second day of creation, God didn't say it was good. All the days of creation, God saw what he made and saw that it was good. Except the second day. It's not good. It doesn't say it was good. Why? Because there's separation between the heavenly waters and the earthly waters. Separation is bad. The Holy Spirit is the heavenly waters. And, and, and this world is desperate for that Holy Spirit. So the world is imperfect. Why was the world made imperfect? So that we can learn to trust God. We're saved in hope. So I think that, that this is the pivotal chapter here. Romans, the eighth chapter, it, everything turns on it. That, that, that our relationship to the law of Moses is, is refreshed and renewed and changed. We fulfill it. We don't observe it in the exact prescriptions described by the Pharisees, but we fulfill it by hearing God, by living uh, according to God's word. Now, let's go to the gospel. By, by, I mean, by God, when I say by God's word, not just the Bible, but by God speaking. So I got a, a pamphlet. Uh, somebody sent me a copy of a pamphlet that actually it's, it's a, a thing I'm really big on. I think it's a, a wonderful thing. I don't want to go into it directly, but I think it's a really good project that these people are pushing and I intend to be part of it. Uh, but it was. It said, help us build the kingdom. And as you know, I cringe whenever I hear that phrase. 
There is no place that I have been able to find in the Bible, in the entire Bible, Old Testament and New, that uses the phrase to build the kingdom. Because the kingdom is not... Uh, Oh, dear. The, the word, oh, how to explain this and how many minutes have I got? Not many for this part of our, our, our deal. But the kingdom of God, the word basilea does not mean, it just doesn't mean it. It's not there. The word kingdom, I'm, I'm, I'm getting all flustered. This is a definition of the word kingdom, basilea in Greek. It's a noun. And its first meaning is royal power, kingship, dominion, rule. And then it says in this definition, which I think is from the famous, which, which one is it from? Is it from Strong's Concord? Strong's, I think. Um, not to be confused with an actual kingdom, but rather the right or authority to rule over a kingdom. It can mean the royal power of Jesus, the royal power and dignity conferred on Christians in the Messiah's kingdom. So, the word kingdom means royalness. This changes everything. I'm going to go too long. I'm sorry. I, I just got to do this. Um, it changes everything. If I understand that the kingdom of God is God's nature, God's royalness, you know, my goal ceases to be, I want to go to heaven and get a mansion on a street of gold where I can eat a lot of food and drink a lot and, and uh, do what I want and uh, lay around and, and watch reruns. Heaven, we don't believe in an Egyptian heaven. The Egyptians believed that heaven was just a continuation of the life on earth, but much better. Oh, no, that's not heaven. Heaven is a relationship. Heaven is, is my relationship to my Heavenly Father, to Christ my Savior, and to the spirit of life, and to all the people who are members of the church. As I said, this pivotal chapter, Romans 8, is not about... Uh, uh, this legality or that legality or whether we can eat meat or sacrifice idols and all that sort of thing. No, it's, it's about the real purpose of Christ's coming, that we should be the first of many brothers and sisters, that we should be adopted by God. And if you understand that Jesus said, uh, Jesus talked about the kingdom as God's very nature, the royal nature of God. Jesus said, what is God's nature really like? To what can I compare? It's like a mustard seed. It's tiny, but then it grows. To what shall I compare God's royal nature? It's like yeast. You don't see it, but it makes it fills the whole loaf. What is God's nature like? It's, it's like a man looking for fine pearls. You're the pearl. He's the guy looking. But the real clincher to me in this, in my argument about about uh, the word kingdom, Jesus said at the Last Supper, "I will not drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you." In, in the royal nature of God, in the, in the kingdom. And when did he next drink the fruit of the vine? On the cross. When they lifted the hyssop with the sponge on it, with the cheap, cheap wine mixed with water. Called, it was called posca. They, they just kept jars of it around uh, um, to take the edge off. Jesus drank and said, it is finished. If Jesus said, the, la the, the, the place, the, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. Then the cross is the kingdom. Huh? Yeah. If I'm right about this, and basilea means God's royal nature, what is God's royal nature like? It's Jesus on the cross. 
Origen, uh, in the 200s, talked about this, that the kingdom is inseparable from Jesus. Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus is God's royal nature. And then there were some, some things that fleshed out. The first person to really push the idea that the kingdom was, was uh, an organization, you know, that the church is sort of the kingdom. And Well, the church, yeah, the church has kingdom. The church has royal nature. You don't, you, you have royal nature. The first guy who said that was Eusebius of Caesarea, who was uh, in real tight with Constantine and wanted the, you know, he was the first guy that talked about <clears throat> uh, um, the church as kind of a, a Roman power broker. You know, the, I'm trying to track down who's the first person, the first person I can find who actually used the phrase to build the kingdom was Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. He, he translated the Bible. In other words, he rewrote it according to his own ideas, expanded parts and changed things. He talked about, uh, instead of seek the kingdom of God, he said, build the kingdom of God. You know, you're not going to find the phrase to build the kingdom anywhere in the scripture. You will find in Jeremiah that I have, if I, oh, where did I put it? Um, you, you'll find in, in Jeremiah the, the phrase, um, I have appointed you uh, to build up and to tear down, to plant and to, to root out nations and kingdoms. In other words, the authority of the prophet is greater than the authority of nations and royal, royal rulers. So, I, you know, the reason that I, I, I just sing this song so incessantly and obnoxiously is because it has to do with our goal. Is my goal to go to heaven so I can lay around in, in, in my house on my mansion on the street of gold? No, my goal is to look like Jesus so that I can become what he wants me to be. The kingdom is about Jesus. It's, it's not about, about this organization. It's not about this, this power play. It's, it's about Jesus. Where Jesus is, there is the kingdom of God. When Jesus said that the kingdom of God has drawn near, he's saying God's royal nature has drawn near to you. He wasn't talking about a, a, an apocalyptic time. The kingdom of God has drawn near to you. In other words, I'm standing here. When Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, what is the truth? Jesus said nothing. Why? Because the truth was standing in front of him. The royal nature of God was standing in front of him. The cross is the royal nature of God. So you can't build the kingdom. Jesus said at the Last Supper, it has pleased your father, little children, to give you a kingdom. No thanks, we're building one. We'll get back to you. No, no, receive the kingdom of God. Receive God's royal nature by drawing close to Jesus. I'll stop talking. We'll go to a break. Oh, the Catholic Order of Foresters toll-free number is 888-914-9149. The lines are open, 888-914-9149. Father Simon says... I was reading a sign over here, Dracula's legend. All of a sudden I heard... That's the wind. It should get oiled. On Relevant Radio. Today we'd like to thank Steve, who is listening in Wisconsin, for donating his 1981 Kawasaki motorcycle... You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let well, it snow. 
it the voice of my head is playing this song now because where I am, it's snowing. It seems a little premature for it to be snowing, but it is. That said, let's move on to letters. I, I got a request from Ada. Uh, hello, Relevant Radio family. God bless you all. I'm happy to listen to your radio station, and we're happy that you listen. I need help to buy a Bible book for an adult girl, not Christian, never read the Bible. Could you please suggest to me what kind of Bible to get her? Oh, dear. Um, don't get her a paraphrase. There are all sorts of wonderful paraphrases like the Living Bible. Don't bother with that. Um, this is a tough question. I, I think the Catholic Study Bible is good. The Navarre Bible is wonderful. Um, voice in my head, do you have any suggestion? Word on fire is good. I, w- I would look at those those three and, and start there. And, you know, you might want to start her off with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then if she finds them interesting, get her to Jeff Cavins, uh, Jeff and Emily Cavins' Great Adventure Bible Study, uh, which I think is the finest introduction to the entire Bible um, for a beginner. So um, those would be my suggestions and hope that helps a little bit. All right, let's see here. All right. This is uh, from um, Len, a very kind letter. And he says, as a dad of 11, in year 41 of homeschooling, I noticed confusion about St. Jude and his provenance, as well as why he's known as impossible uh, missions for Jesus go to apostle. If you, you're mentioned in this piece that shows the typical St. Jude Thaddeus presentation of the gold medallion is a mistranslation of the business. Of, uh, huh? Uh, oh, good grief. That, but I can't, you know, I, I can't click on. Uh, um, good uh, grief. Um, the, the, I, I never click on, on things sent when I'm on a relevant radio computer because, you know, so uh, that doesn't work. But this, why is, the, the question I will attempt to answer is why is St. Jude Thaddeus the patron saint of impossible, the impossible? And the theory that I was taught was that, well, St. Jude, Yehuda was a very common name among Jews. And there were two Yehudas, and there was Yehuda Ishkariot, and there was uh, uh, um, this Yehuda. And over the the eons of history, the, the Jude who betrayed Jesus was confused sometimes with the Jude uh, uh, who did not betray Jesus. And so... He was in an impossible situation, hence became the apostle of the apostle of the impossible. So I don't know if that's true, but there wasn't much of a devotion to St. Jude Thaddeus uh, um, over the, uh, I think that's how it's, it is. Let me, let me click on that. But there wasn't much of a, a devotion to him, lest people be confused about who he was. And so uh, he became the, the, the patron saint of, of hopeless causes. Yeah, this is, um, let's see here. Yeah, Jude Thaddeus, uh, uh, he, he was, you know, kind of neglected. So there you go. Um, I hope that helps. Uh, let's move on because that's as, as good as I can do about this. Let's see. Where's, where's the next letter that I want to do here? All right. 
Okay, this is... Um, uh, do you mind sharing your interpretation of Deuteronomy 25.7 and, if possible, modern application for these verses? Oh, this this is a good one. Deuteronomy 20. Five to seven says, well, in the context, let's 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 get it in the beginning. Hold on, let let me let me pull this up uh, in my favorite opener. No, it's not going to be there, but I'll get it. I'll get it. Here we go. I got it. I got it. Okay, he's so strict. Okay, in the um, Deuteronomy, the twentieth chapter, uh, we read that if, if all the little things that are crowding in for my attention will get off my screen. The officer shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and had begun to live in it? Let him go home. Or he may die in battle and someone else might begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home. He may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home. Or he may die in battle and someone else may may marry her. This is... Uh, um, uh, about these are rules for going to war um and the point is that that um in verse four you read the lord your god is the one who gives you to fight who who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and give victory so it isn't the bigger army it isn't the the stricter army it's it's the lord going before israel to win battles so you know this idea of 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 someone else might enjoy the grapes well Go home. If you're afraid to go into battle, it's a volunteer army. Go home. That's the idea, because it depended on God's providence to win the battle. It wasn't the strength of the army that did it. So I, I hope that explains the situation. Let's see here. Is there anything else about that? No, I, I think not. Okay, let me go to another letter here. I get put on this. Okay. All right. Let me see here. Okay. Oh, by the way, there are plenty of lines open at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Okay. Um, always wondering in scriptures, they, the angels saw the women of earth and saw them as desirable. They came down and had relations with them. I don't think the scripture says that anywhere. It says that, that the, the sons of God, um, had desired the daughters of men uh, that I think Dr. Scott Hahn's interpretation is, uh, is, is the most coherent and cogent that the sons of God uh, um, uh, saw the, the women, the sons of men. Uh, okay. The daughters of men. Okay, here we go. All right. Um, Genesis six, two, it doesn't say the angels. It says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. I th again, I, I'm attributing, I heard this from Dr. Hahn. I don't know if it's original with him, but I don't think so. That, that these are the sons of the covenant. And, and uh, um, they, they wed women who were not in covenant with the Lord. And thus they, 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 um, offended God in that, in that sense. So my spirit will not contend with man forever for his mortal. His day shall be 120 years. That's the max. So I think that, that this is, this is what's going on here. Uh, there are all sorts of people with all these theories about the Nephilim and monsters and giants and, 
Scripture is kind of vague about it, but I think that's the most reasonable thing that that um, uh, that these were marriages outside of the covenant with God, and that principle is still true. Oh, something I didn't answer in the letter about the grapes and and the the vineyard and married a wife. Uh, how does that apply uh, um, uh, to things modern? I think that principle in Deuteronomy 20, verse 5 to 7, really does apply to, you know, don't get yourself over-involved in, in all these things, especially when you are newly married or when you've got something that, that you're doing that's important for the sake of your family and your spouse. I think that's the biblical principle here. There's, uh, I've seen marriages collapse because a newly married couple, she or he, were in church eight, nine, ten nights a week, and uh, uh, wife and children were orphans of church orphans. Don't do that. Your first task is your sacramental obligation. So, you know, God will fight the battle without you. Uh, do what you need to do in your primary responsibility, which is always your family. So that's the modern application, the fulfillment of that biblical principle, I think. But now back to this. So the sons of men, um, the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind were beautiful. They married outside the covenant. I think, I, I really think that that's, that's what it applies to. Okay, let me, let me think. I got another letter here. Okay, let's see here. All right, one more letter. During David's reign, this is from John. There was a very strong Israeli army. However, during the time of Jesus, the Jews were occupied by the Roman army. It seems the Jews did have some sort of army or police during that time because they were sent to arrest Jesus. Can you expound on the Jewish police or army during the time of Jesus? It seems that they were also tasked with securing the temple and watching over the priests. That, that was their primary responsibility, that there would be the palace guards of Herod. There would be uh, the, the temple guards. They were guards. They weren't an army. The Romans would permit no other army uh, to occupy its space. It was the Roman army. Uh, this would have been a very small force, and um, it would have had very specific uh, requirements. It was a, a security service, not an army. So I, I hope that explains it. I, I, I think that that is probably the fact. All right, let's go to a break. We're going to come back, of course, with our word of the day. And uh, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. If there's something strange in your neighborhood, who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! If there's something weird and it don't look good, who you gonna call? Don't call your, don't call the exorcist, he's busy, I'm kidding. Oh, Lord. Happy, happy eve of all hallows. Oh, I don't want to get into that. Let's get to the word of the day. Adoption. Let us talk about adoption, which is really interesting. It means to be placed as a son. 
It's huiothesia. Huiothesia, accent on the second to last syllable. Huiothesia. That, that to be placed as a son or daughter. And, you know, the prince or princess of God's, of God's kingdom. And, you know, that's what the feast is all about, you know, tomorrow. And, of course, don't forget, we're having Lives of the Saints tomorrow. And I, I get to talk about a couple of famous German women. Well, actually, Walburga wasn't a German woman. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But St. Walburga and, and uh, uh, St. Hildegard of Bingen. So uh, the, these are German women and, well, Germanic women, at least. And they're tough people. But this idea of adoption. Um, that, that that's what we're going for. We're not going for just, oh, I'm going to get a nice mansion, a street of gold, and maybe occasionally I'll go visit God. No, nonsense. You're going to be, you know, when, when the scripture says in the Father's house there are many mansions, it really means many dwelling places. you got a room in the Father's house. You're going home. That's the idea. We don't go to heaven. We go home. So enough said. Let, let's go to, uh, uh, if I can find the right button to press, let us go to... Uh, Hello, uh, yes, that's it. Where did I, I somehow, hmm, I have a nice Chinese pagoda and I don't have the calls. How did that happen? Oh, good grief. Um, well, let's go to Mike from Houston. Mike, what can I do for you? Uh, good afternoon, Father. Um, Sunday, I went to uh, a Latin Rite Mass. And yeah. it's 60 years since I've been to one. And I used to be an altar boy. My brother and I used to yeah. serve mass every morning at six. But anyway, when the priest turned around and held up the host, the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus, yeah. it was awe-inspiring. And I was wondering if that was maybe a glimpse of the kingdom. You're saying the kingdom is Jesus and has to do with Jesus. Yeah, yeah you and, can't separate the kingdom from Jesus. Yeah, yeah you're beholding his nature. You know, that he appeared to us as a child, as a crucified criminal, and even in the appearance of what looks like bread, that, that, that it isn't quite what you're expecting. I think that that is a good insight. I think that's a good insight. So, yeah, I would say that that's true, that, that uh, to see that majesty uh, in, 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 in the host is, is a, a wonderful thing. Uh, so thanks for calling. Thanks for uh, listening. Let's go to Mary from Dallas. Are you with us, Mary from Dallas? Yes, Father. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my question is, my question is, um, I know that confession, the sacrament of confession, didn't always exist the way um, we use it now. When did that happen and who started it? Oh, there's the idea of frequent confession. You know, what I was taught in no, seminary no, was that... Not, what? not frequent confession, but the confession, like where you have to go in the confessional and confess your sins and things like that. Oh, yeah. Well, well, in, oh, good grief. In the early church, what you had was, let me turn off my noisemaker. What you had in the early church was um, uh, public confession. You went in front of the whole congregation. Everybody knew that you'd made a mess of it. And uh, uh, if you committed what we would call a mortal sin, like adultery, idolatry, murder, uh, you would have to stand up in front of the entire congregation and ask to be readmitted. And then you would be assigned a lengthy uh, public penance. Uh, and and uh, 
you would be excluded from communion for a year or two. I mean, it was, it was arduous. And it seems that when people began to come into the church after the persecutions were over, that there were all sorts of, um, uh, there were all sorts of people wanting to come back and they just kind of had to, uh, uh, kind of make it more convenient. That's when the, the individual confessions and priests hearing confessions probably started. That's as I was taught. But, um, the secrecy of it, I, I think, uh, developed rather slowly. In fact, is it's kind of interesting that I remember seeing old confessionals in Europe that that had a grill. But a woman went to the grill uh, so that she was separated very directly from the priest, but a man would actually go and kneel in front of this kind of confessional, and it was actually kind of a face-to-face confession. Uh, I remember seeing that in Europe, those kind of confessionals. But uh, it was a slow development. But the idea of the, the individual confession, I really think, began to happen around 350, 400 A.D. Does that help a little? It sure does, Father. Thank you very much. Also, can I have a source for what you mentioned about Scott Hahn and his talking about um, you know, Genesis with the sons I, of the Father and stuff? Because I, I have an, a relative who... I I don't, I don't, you know, I I wouldn't bother to argue with him, say, maybe you're right. We'll see at the end. But I don't, I can't footnote it. It might have been, you know, I've I've had the privilege to have some conversations uh, with with, uh, Dr. Han. And so it might have been in in that context. I'm not sure. So wish I could be more help in that. Well, let's go to Mac from, you're welcome. Let's go to Mac from Davenport. Are you with us, Mac from Davenport? Yes, Father. Yeah, I have a quick question. I've, I've been going to Mass, and I've been noticing that a lot of people leave after the Eucharist, and I just want to know how important is that final blessing? You know, I know fathers, they have to do a lot of uh, uh, stuff from the from the, um uh, the bulletin, they have to talk about a lot of stuff, but and people don't want to stick around for that. But how important is that final blessing at the end of Mass? Well, if you were visiting a very dear friend and he's talking uh, and then someone says something and before you can say goodbye, you walk out, that would be rather impolite. You know, it, it, it isn't a mortal sin, but it certainly isn't an, an accomplishment. Uh, we, we priests are fond of saying the first person to leave a mass early was Judas. You know, it, it, it kind of is, is, um, you know, the, the blessing is a blessing. You know, it's not essential, but, uh, um, it is part of the mass and part of our respect and honor to the Lord. I mean, are those three minutes that important? We become a society that, that, that values three minutes and then we waste hours and hours watching commercials on television. So I think it's important to stay. It isn't that the blessing is important though. It's, it is a blessing and it's important in that sense. The the real importance is the reverence that we give to the Lord by staying until it's done. Now, sometimes there are reasons to leave. I got to get to work or, or I'm, I have an emergency or something. Somebody called, um, there are legitimate reasons, but, but, those are rare. And, uh, you know, those extra three minutes, people, what they're really doing is trying to get out of the parking lot before it gets crowded. Well, if you're worried about getting out of the parking lot before it gets crowded, park on the street. Um, 
it's funny that we have this strange perspective on time. But I hope I don't know if that answers your question. But I, I no, that's those are my I thoughts just, on I, it. I, I just hope anybody's listening, like you know, they would hear you and they would know maybe to stick around for those extra three minutes. That's all. Yeah. Well, it's a, the worry about the parking lot because Lord knows <laughs> we'd like to we like to get stay an extra ten minutes giving a Thanksgiving and in into the to the lord after holy communion and by that time the parking lot will be pretty emptied out so that's my advice to people who are worried about getting stuck in the parking lot so well thanks for calling thanks for listening let's go to joe joe are you with us yes i am father simon look forward to your show every day well thank you thank you what can i do for you joe well, about a week ago, you talked about the book of Maccabees, and if I interpreted yeah. it right, you said that they don't know who wrote the book of Maccabees, and I've run into some arguments on that. Well, I, I don't know that I said that. Um, uh, I think you may be confusing with someone who's actually smart, um, but uh, the book of Maccabees, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we know the author. Who did you run into who said on the contrary? Uh, a a Mormon friend of mine, and uh, oh. and I might have, I might have misinterpreted what what you did say, but you did have uh, some sort of lengthy uh, explanation on the Maccabees, and to my remembrance, hmm. uh, you said what it meant, but there were many authors to it, and they didn't really know who the author was. But then again, I might have I'm... misinterpreted you. Well, I, I gosh, I, I wish I remembered saying that, but. Um... Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that, um, that, um, that's true. Um, I, I don't think we know who wrote them. Um, I, I think that that, that's true. And if, uh, you know, Mormons completely, oh dear, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, Mormons kind of have rewritten the, the Bible on, uh, to their own liking, and then they've rewritten a book uh, 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 that that um, uh, that kind of adds to the Bible, the Book of Mormon. So I wouldn't I wouldn't even really argue with them about Scripture because they kind of wrote their own. So I don't know if that helps at all. But no, we really don't quite know. Uh, who wrote it? Uh, there's a guy named Jason of Cyrene's abridgment in Second Maccabees, but uh, that's as close as we come to an author. Uh, he was a Jason of Cyrene was a Hellenistic Jew uh, who he's the author of a five-volume history of the Maccabean revolt. Uh, um, but that's not the book of Maccabees. So I, again, I, as far as I know, I, I, I'm, I'll try to look around, but I, I don't think that we know exactly who wrote the books of Maccabees. So there you go. All right. Hope that helps. And who do we have now? Jerry, Jerry, are you with us? Jerry? Yes, Father. I follow you all wherever you go. Oh, um, dear. I, have a, <laughs> I have a question about um, angels. Like we did an angel study at our church, and mm -hmm, yeah. in the book that we were reading, talked about a legend that was a Jewish legend that said that mm -hmm. the babies or the souls were created in heaven, and then when the baby is conceived in the womb, that God puts the soul into that baby. Is that correct? Well, uh, I, I I think that 
it would be correct to say that each individual soul is a specific creation of God. That, that you know, we're thinking there's this large apartment building called heaven, and that's where this happens. No, it happens in, in the mind of God, I mean, as does everything. Um, but uh, each individual human being, uh, I, I think most people, most theologians would say, is is a unique creation of God. It's not simply uh, a chemical process. That the body is is created from natural means, but but each soul is is known by God. So in that sense, you could interpret it that way. That's how I would look at it. Does that help a little? Well, that the soul is created way before the body is. I don't know about way before. Again, you're talking about God. And when you talk about God, can you talk about before or after? You know, well, for okay. him, for yeah. whom there is no yeah. time, you know? Okay. You know, well, I there's mean, that. Okay. There's that problem. I mean, God lives outside of time. So you can't say, well, God created it before the body. You know, the, the Jews have an interesting approach to this. They They think of the creativity of God as being a continuous process. That each thing has mm. a name. And every human being has a name. And if God stopped speaking the name of this thing, it would cease to exist. In other okay, words, God yeah. speaking continually creates things. And, you know, I, I don't know if that is uh, part of what we believe doctrinally, but I think it's a beautiful idea that, that God not only made these things or makes these things, he sustains them in being. So he sustains every soul in being. And were he to forget about us, which he won't, uh, we would cease to exist. So that, that kind of puts a different spin on it. Yeah, I think yeah, it's a beautiful it idea. Yeah. Yes, that's, yeah. yeah. Well, so thank there, you. I, well, go on. I'm going to just continue. I, I told you before, I wish I could just come and work with you in the church because I, I love everything you, <laughs> you do on the radio. So, Well, God anyway, bless you. Thanks. I'm honored. Praise you. Thank you. Well, God bless have you. A, and, have a great and, uh, day. I'm going to do my best to. It's Kind of snowing where I am, but that's all right. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for listening. Sam from Long Island, I got a minute. What can I do for you, Sam? Hello, Father Simon. Thank you for the broadcast. I listen to you every day, and I, I learn oh, a lot you. of things. I learn a oh. lot of things from uh, listening to you. Thank you. Um, well, I got a you. question. I heard um, on the Internet, one of the documentaries on the Internet about Abraham, and uh, it said, Yes, Sarah is Abraham's brother's daughter. And, uh, yes. Abraham, Sarah was a... Oh, there's music, which means I gotta go. But yes, Sarah was actually a half-sister of Abraham. They, 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 it sounds odd to us, but it was before the, the, the law was written, so uh, before the Torah. And speaking of before the law was written. Drew is not that old. He's quite young, actually. So stay tuned. <laughs> 